From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It might be the ultimate challenge for a chef, revamping the menu for a beloved restaurant that oddly was known for its bad food. I'm talking about Casa Bonita and its new executive chef, Donna Rodriguez. She had to be a problem solver, like how to keep food hot with the long walk from the kitchen to the tables. This place is massive. It's 60,000 square feet facility. To be wandering around with your tray. Oh, and there was that vague sopapilla recipe she inherited. 100 pounds flour, water, lard. And then I'm like, that's weird. They're not ratios. Rodriguez tells us how she applied to be a dishwasher at Casa Bonita years ago and was turned down. Now she's running the place. Thank you for your generous donation during the member drive. Your support, along with other donors, is essential. It's the only way CPR can report the news to you, to bring you entertainment and music. Donating, that's voluntary, so thank you for choosing to donate. Because of you, Colorado Public Radio can continue to do its best work for you, your community, and our state. You truly make a difference. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Casa Bonita, the restaurant-slash-amusement park in Lakewood, became as famous for its questionable food as its cliff divers, which is why the new owners, the creators of South Park, brought on a new chef, one who's made a real mark on Colorado's food scene, Donna Rodriguez. I met her in front of Casa Bonita 2.0, which has been open for about three months on a limited basis as they work through their wait list and perfect the operation. A note that our conversation got a little salty, not just talking about the margarita rims. There will be some bleeps. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Casa. Look at that fountain. It sounds amazing. The Pepto- it smells really good. It smells really good. <laughs> the Pepto-Bismol paint looks great. Right? Did this place mean anything to you before you got associated with the project? Uh, well, it means it's, it's like a movie to me because I came and applied here in 1998 and I didn't get the job. What was the job? I applied for a dishwasher. You and I wasn't, to... I wasn't qualified. So they say no to me and then I go into my journey and then I come back. So it's awesome. It feels really good. And now you're in charge of the food. Entrance. Welcome to Casa. It reminds me of the original. It just, everything looks fresher. It smells good. It's fresh. It's clean. It's funny. You've twice mentioned smell. Was, oh. that, was that a complaint it people was, had? It, always. It was like the first thing that people always talk about it. I mean, that pool has been open since 1973, 74. The most important thing, you know, for Matt and Troy is like they want to change nothing and improve everything. We've been saying this forever. The queue line here is one of the things that everybody remember. You can buy a ticket to go straight to your table, but most of the people, they choose to go back to the old school. So that's what I'm going to walk you through. Okay, you have the option of table service, but people want that old feeling that they probably had as a kid of waiting in line with a tray. And this is a total new building that we add. And we turn it into Oaxaca Plaza. 
And it's got those beautiful little flags. Yeah, and the colors and everything are, are perfect, right? Everything looks like, you know, the little houses there and all of that. And then that's where you order your food. I want enchiladas, I want relleno, versus when you go to the table, you order there with your server, like in a normal restaurant. This is a pretty ornate frame over a giant menu. Yep. And the dishes are, wow, you have mole? I do have mole. Oh my gosh, it's one of my favorite dishes. We keep Ceviche. the enchiladas. Enchiladas? Yeah, I mean, we keep a few taco salad, enchiladas, pork, um, rice and beans, and of course the sopapillas from the old menu. But I wanted to do it in my own way, you know, like the enchiladas, we make the tortillas in-house. We bring the Mexican cheese. We make the red chili and the green chili here. I can't believe there is ceviche. It is. Shrimp ceviche. Did you think of that? Of course. The way that I create my menus, I try to be 80% gluten-free. I want to be conscious of the people or generation now have a lot of allergies, and I want to make sure I have something for everyone. So I create things that they are vegan, vegetarian, meat, and I always like to have fish on the menu too. So I try like adobo shrimp. So it was like a red chili with um, butter and garlic and it was delicious. But then I realized in the first practice weeks that we put it there and then in 10 minutes, you know, the shrimp, if it keeps cooking, it turns like in a piece of plastic. Uh-huh. So I'm like, oh, I cannot do that. And as much as I wanted to make good quality food, it's hard because it's a huge venue. You know, you're going to be able to do, I don't know, 5,000 plates. So I wanted to do it right. And I said, okay, let's do shrimp, but let's do it in a different way that is not going to, you know, change the consistency or the quality. Right, because if it's so ceviche, ceviche yeah. yeah, if it's a fresh shrimp, not a cooked shrimp, yep. then you don't have to worry about rubbery shrimp. Yep. Yeah. And it lasts longer, like during the day. Like if you're going to have it in the cooler, it's fine. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of my questions was what the quality control is when the quantity yep. of service is so voluminous. And you're not even at capacity at this point. No. We've been doing a 1,000 people a day. On the double days, that is Saturdays, we do 2,200 people. Uh, but we design, you know, I designed these kitchens to be efficient, to be high volume. Same thing with the bars. When we do all the design, it was just to be able to do 5,000 people a day. We wanted to do five turns, six turns. So we're not there yet, but everything is built to go that way, including uh-huh. the menus, the drinks and the food. So this is a dry run. You guys are still working the kinks out. Absolutely. Because when people found out I was going to interview you, the number one question was, <laughs> when will it be open to everyone? We are open to the public. The difference is like, it's not the big line that we used to do. It's more like a ticket. And they want to do it right. It's going to be opening more days eventually, and then more seatings. So we're going slowly but surely. So no date specific yet for a general opening. No. Okay. Not yet. I would love to see the dining room and talk more about your fantastic culinary journey and your vision. We're going through that little door. Okay. Then you walk through Abuelita's Casa. It's a grandma. Casa de la Abuelita. Yeah. The house of little grandma. Yes. And sometimes grandma's, you know, yes, on the chair, making a dress for the granddaughter. And, you know, it's a 
cute thing that kids love. It looks like a little living room. There's a sewing machine, a rocking chair, an old telephone. And this is Abuelita's courtyard. You know, Abuelitas always have plants all over. And then from Abuelitas, we're going to the tortilleria. We make the tortillas in-house. And I want to show, like, from having the flower over there, that is not just a show. Sometimes they knock on the window to get tortillas for the kids. When you were growing up in Chihuahua, Mexico, I think you used to grind corn to make masa for tortillas. Yes. This is a tradition for you since... Your earliest years. Since you're born, you that's the first sound probably you hear instead of hearing the battle for the babies, is the corn grinding your mom <laughs> or your grandma. Like, that's in our every day. You also did butchery with your dad, didn't I you? I did, yes. Does that still come in handy? Absolutely. Like, I, I learned more here with my mentors. Obviously, in Chihuahua, we don't have fish. So I learned how to do whole fish here, like 200 pounds halibut here. I do goats, lambs, pigs. Uh, we can do cows. Chickens, all of that. And I love that because then you utilize everything. You make sausages with all the leftovers. So working class is the perfect place for that menu. So we do that a lot at working class. Yeah, working class is another of your restaurants. Yeah. Casa Bonita, not your only gig. You've got Mm -hmm. Super Mega Bien, Cantina Loca. There's your tequila brand, Doña Loca. Yep. Can I pick up on this word, loca? Crazy? Because your bio says you're crazy, <laughs> but in the best way possible. Absolutely. What does that mean? It means that you, you're unstoppable. You keep trying and you try to do the right thing all the time and you have no fear to keep going. And why is that crazy? Well, crazy comes from a different story. I think it's crazy because not everybody has that. I feel like a superpower inside, like keep going. If you fail, get up and keep running. You know, that's to me, for a lot of people, is that you're crazy, can you stop? But the crazy story came from a different, when I started at Panzano. Uh, I used to have this manager, he called me all the time, like, speak English, I don't understand what you say. And I go home and cry for months, and one day I'm like, I'm done with this I'm done. So I didn't cost at all. Like, I came from Mexico, going to, my mom was Christian to the bones. Mm -hmm. Like, I went to Christian school, like, no bad words, like, good girl. And you get to Ponsano. Let me say, this is an Italian restaurant in downtown. You began there as a dishwasher. Yes. Uh, This is also where the chef discovered your talent. Yes. Realized your talent and changed the course of your life. Absolutely. But keep telling this story. So the interesting part is that I came in a play at Casa. They say no, I went, Panzano was the second restaurant and they hired me immediately. They're about to open. So that's how I meet my mentors. And Jen is like, Dana, you gotta be the sous chef. And I say, no, I mean, my Spanish is pretty rough still. But back then it was hard to communicate with people. And Jen and is one, Jen Jasinski. Yes. And open it's an open kitchen. So you're in front of customers, you're in front of the servers. So I hesitate for the first time, like, no, not ready. She's like, okay, let, let me train you a little bit more and train you a little bit more. Finally, I say, okay, I'm ready. And I go for it. And then our manager, he's always like, I don't understand what you say. Speak English. It's an open kitchen. So I was sad and crying. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. One day, it was an Easter weekend. Okay. Busy. You know, like hotels and everybody get busy for Easter. Right. Panzano so was, was attached to a oh, hotel. Yeah, to the Monaco Hotel. So it was a Saturday night. We're super busy. Open kitchen. And he came to me like as soon as I started running the line. And he's like, 
Jane, I speak English. I don't understand what you say. And literally, I feel like something hot on my body. I always tell people that story, like, hot, like heat. And my, my blood was boiling. And I turn around and I say, well, f*** you. Do you understand that? And then he turned around. He looked at me. He say, you're loco. And then I turn around again. I say, by the way, as loca. I'm a girl. Loca. Not a boy. Not loco. No loco. <laughs> So since then, everybody's like, hey, loca, hey, loca, and it becomes a thing. And, you know, I take the advantage of that because a lot of people don't know my name. My name is Dana, you know, in Spanish. But everybody read it as Dana. So I'm like, just call me loca. And everybody start calling me loca instead of Dana, Diana, Donna, Diana, like so many. I'm like, loca. So everybody call me loca. It's National Hispanic Heritage Month, and we're spending some time with Chef Donna Rodriguez. She's behind the culinary reboot of Casa Bonita in Lakewood. When I met her at the restaurant slash theme park, I had some customer reviews in hand. Uh Uh-oh. Can I read one to you? (laughs) Of course. The food is good. No more slop. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's a good one. It's a high compliment. <laughs> it is. To have your food called No More Slop. I know. But I, I, I wonder if it felt like a challenge to both keep the things that had been on the menu, but also elevate them. It is a challenge because I like to use quality product. I don't like to buy like canned cheese that I can put on top of the enchiladas. We grind the cheese here. We make the enchiladas. We cook it every 10 minutes when we open for service, so I keep it fresh. And, you know, the challenge is, like, it's a lot of bad reviews, too. And people are still like, I like the old food better. And other people is like, did you get sick? I didn't. Okay, so it's a lot of going back and forth. I don't read everything because then it will get in my head. Uh My hardest challenge is, like, I want people to eat hot food. Hot. And, yes. Yes, what an interesting so, thing. Anyone who's made a big meal for the holidays yeah. and you know has, has been in charge of the entree and the side dishes and the dessert and the and the, knows how difficult it is to keep everything yep. hot for the moment of service. Yep. Well, the challenge is like this place is massive. It's 60,000 square feet facility to be wandering around with your tray. If you have like a, I don't know, grandma and three kids and you're walking very slow, it's going to take you like five, seven minutes to get to your table. For the time that you sit and you put everybody around the table, your food is not hot the way that I want it. So we have a lot of challenges. And what I change on the menu is that I want most everything on sauces that it lasts longer with the temperature. Interesting. So I have like the suadero, which is the brisket. It's cooking green chili, and when I serve it, like, put an extra green chili on top, so it lasts a little bit longer until you get there. Rice and beans, they get a little bit, like, warm temperature, but it's still really good. And we challenge, like, before we open, we practice with the construction people, with our employees, like, okay, everybody get online, get your food, go sit on the gold mines all the way there, like, is the food still hot? How fast can we walk? Like, we timing (sighs) things. It's only so much that I can do when it's going to be 5,000 people and it's a big line and the grandma or my kids in front of me or, I don't know, a person with a broken leg is not going to be able to walk fast in front of you. So it's a lot of things that you cannot control and control. Right. But the point is, if you serve things in sauces, the sauces are like a warm yep. hug, a hot yep. hug yep. that keeps the food. So the they food. last longer. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the ceviche is cold. <laughs> because it's, it's easy to maintain a fish with that good quality 
as a ceviche versus a hot salmon that when it gets all the way there is going to be overcooked from the steam table soggy and dry and cold in your table so it's like i wanted to put things that i can control a little bit of the quality so i designed three different kitchens i designed production which is all the shop shop cooking prepping all morning the second one over there is to keep everything hot when we open for service so we keep everything fresh. So I have a, an army of people like doing a, burgers every 10 minutes for kids, enchiladas every 10 minutes. We have beans cooking, like we always, un, it doesn't stop. They here like seven in the morning to midnight. So you helped design the kitchen. I did, I designed the kitchen. Amazing, okay. Yeah. And the bars a little bit because that's how I, that's what I do through my own restaurants. I build everything from the ground. And to me, I have to do it on the way that it feels efficient for me, that I can be able to execute this volume. So this is the other kitchen. This is for catering, for events, for the people that they order from the clip side where you came straight to your reservation. So even from here, and that's the battle that I tell you, like when they pick up the food here, I'm like, run. Like you gotta get to the table. You were the chef at the French restaurant Bistro Vendôme, and from time to time, customers wanted to give their compliments to the chef. And here's what you told me in 2014. When I was at Bistro Vendôme, they requested to talk to the chef, and there is a Mexican girl going up there, and they're like, oh, not the dishwasher, the chef. And I'm like, that's me. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, and it was a joke that we always talk about it. Everybody has like, I can see on their face when they're like, oh, we're gonna talk to the chef and I showed up and I'm like, I know. <laughs> Do you still face that kind of, I mean, I don't know if it's prejudice, I don't know if it's poor assumptions. Absolutely, I mean, it's part of this industry, it's part of the reality and it's part of life. It gave me like the gasoline to keep going. Mm. You know what I mean? So I still facing some of those things in here. Like, you know, when they talk about the food, when they talk about how we design things, what kind of honey we use on the sopapillas, things like that. It's part of life and it's part of the culture in the industry. I'm glad you mentioned the sopapillas. Mm -hmm. Do you still raise a little flag to get them? Yep, we do. So we have the flags here and the design... I remember we talk a lot about this, like how we're going to make it work this time. You know, when we start cleaning the old ones, they were a little full of honey <laughs> <laughs> and a little sticky. So we decide to, you know, yes, do a new design. People ask, I remember when we start building the menu and everything, they say, are you keeping divers, sopapillas, and flags? Those are the three things that is the most memorable thing that, Everybody remembers from casa. And you can say yes, yes, and yes. Yes. Yeah. I say, I, I, I cannot tell you what else is going to change, but those, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> Did you change the sopapilla recipe in any way? No, I didn't change it. I not even modify. I Here is the thing. When I was looking for old recipes, yeah. I have a recipe that I say, and I have a picture of that. 100 pounds flour, water, lard, and that's it. And then I'm like, that's weird. There are no ratios. So the, in the beginning, they used to use lard, which is the pork fat. Uh, now I use shortening because I wanted to keep it for the people that they wanted to eat with no, you know, no meat animal on product, it, animal yeah. product. Uh, so I changed it for that. And then I find the ratios like 
trying the recipes. They, okay, let's start with 25 pounds of flour. And then the beauty is that I have right now 25 employees from the previous casa, and they used to be the one who made the sopapillas. Oh. Not the dough, but they make, they fry it and they serve it. So I bring all of them and I say, okay, I'm testing these recipes because I want to make sure it's the same one. So we try it and until they're like, no, it's too chewy. No, it's too hard. No, it's not the flavor. No, it's that. And then we're like, yep, those are the ones. So They we are make your it continuity. Yeah. They, they connect you yeah. to what was. And I think we make it work and they're happy and they back to their own spot making sopapillas every day. Uh, indeed, a lifetime ago, you started as a dishwasher at the Italian restaurant Panzano in downtown Denver. I wonder, do you connect with dishwashers in your restaurants today with some type of encouragement or understanding? I connect with every single one. And the reason why is because I started as a dishwasher. And then I was the prep. And then I was the banquet. And then I was grill. Satay, salads, and then I become the sous chef. So I did all the steps. It's the part that I love the most. Being a mentor is that you don't have to be doing dishes forever. You're really good at cutting onions and pepper. You're going to be my next prep. I have this girl that she wanted to apply here as a server. Before, she was one of the cleaners in the construction, and she said, I want to work for you. I want to go to school right now so I can learn a little bit of English, and then I can be a buster, maybe a server. And I say, why well, you don't start in the kitchen? So you understand everything. And now she's one of my lead person. And we've been open for three months, yeah. literally. Like, she showed the skills immediately, and I say, oh, that's what Jen see on myself when I was 22 at Pansano doing dishes. Jen I want you to do exactly the same. And that's what I've been doing with the people that they run my restaurants. It's like, first, because I'm a mom. Second, because I own business and they become your kids. So you want to be the mom and mentor to them all the time and say, oh, you're so good at this. Let's try something new. Let's do something different. Like pushing people in the good way, I think it comes from me because... That's how I feel it started my career and my life in here. Mm-hmm. So, Before we go, National Hispanic Heritage Month runs through October 15th. It started in 1968 as a week under President Lyndon Johnson. Ronald Reagan expanded it in 1988 to a month. When did it enter your awareness? Uh, I've been doing a bunch of events for all of this, and it's so funny, I was joking around because I say, and I'm the only Mexican chef in town. Like, I have to do all the events on my own. Come on, people. Um, but it's part of what I love to do. I've been involved with 36 nonprofits. You know, tell the story. Like, people don't understand those 25 years. What it went through there? Domestic violence, maybe discrimination, maybe whatever you name it. You see it, and you need to encourage people and go, I learned something. And the... Hispanic or Latin Heritage Month is the best opportunity for me to put my restaurants as a platform to help other people. How can you encourage people that even when you go through the worst, you can find the most positive to take the next step? And even if you do something wrong and you fail, it's not a failure. You don't lose a business. You don't close a restaurant. It's like, no, it's my chance to do something different. Mm-hmm. So. I do that especially on this month, and I've been doing that for the past, I don't know, probably 15 years being involved in a lot of things with the Latinos and and the Latino community in Colorado. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm really grateful. Thank you.
Chef Donna Rodriguez is the culinary brains behind the new Casa Bonita in Lakewood. The restaurant is in what it calls a beta test phase, which means no walk-ins for now, but limited invitations to people on its mailing list. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with buses, trains, and budgets. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Maybe you have seen the new black Colorado license plates. They're getting very popular, but... Uh, where are the mountains? Does black have any special significance? How and why did the DMV decide on these plates? And if your registration is still current, but you can't wait, can you get one too? Colorado Wonders digs into these new black license plates, and you can read all about it at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, standing just outside Union Station in downtown Denver. The train to the plane is leaving in just a few minutes. Another has pulled in. And our transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner, is the one who's brought me here. Hi, Nate. Hi, Ryan. And why have you brought us here? So I'm going to tell you a story about these trains that we're looking at right now and the billions of dollars they cost to build and operate and whether the Regional Transportation District, or RTD, can truly afford them. And I've asked you to meet me here because I think it'll help you understand how RTD's budgets work. Budgets, plural. Yeah, so here we can see a lot of different train lines. The A-line to the airport you mentioned, the N-line to North Glen just pulled in, and there's so many others. And they were part of the big fast tracks program that voters approved back in 2004, which came with a new sales tax to pay for all this. All right, a sales tax that paid for trains. That's right. Okay, now let's go down the stairs right here. Okay, now we're leaving the sunny outdoor train station, underground now. And we are about to walk into the bus depot. All right, this is the underground bus station behind Union Station. And we passed a lot of folks waiting for their rides, perhaps to Lakewood, Aurora, across Denver. Yeah, and most of these buses are funded by a different sales tax, the original RTD sales tax that voters approved 50 years ago. Well, Nate, we're being asked to get inside the station and away from the buses. But this explains the budgets, plural, separate ones for fast tracks and for buses. Yeah, that's basically right. Fast tracks taxes mostly cover trains. The original tax mostly covers buses. And the reason we're talking about this is last month, RTD predicted this two budget solution was about to break down in a really problematic way. Yikes. Well, why does RTD separate its budgets this way in the first place? Really, it's to protect bus riders. There's a history of transit agencies across the country raiding their bus budgets to pay for rail expansions. It happened in Los Angeles in the 1980s, for example. And bus riders sued LA Metro over that. Robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, and this is a generalization, but a lot of rail lines are designed for white-collar commuters coming into downtown. A lot of bus riders are poorer folks, so it's just not an equitable move. And RTD separated its train and bus budgets to keep itself from doing that, I guess. Yeah, retired RTD staffers told me it was supposed to be a guardrail. Fast Tracks was supposed to be financially independent. And then what happened last month? 
RTD's financial brass was presenting their six-year financial plan. They do this every year. And RTD predicted its fast tracks budget would be a billion dollars in the hole by the end of the 2020s. A billion dollars, why? Well, what RTD staff told the board was it came down to debt. Around 2010, when RTD was trying to build all this, they were in a lot of financial trouble because of the Great Recession. So they took out these really, really big loans, billions of dollars, more than they originally planned, to get the cash to get all this moving. Okay, so the loans are more than a decade old, and why are they a big deal now? Because RTD designed them to balloon right about now. RTD's been paying mostly only interest on these loans. And now they're about to start paying down principal too. And that is gonna push up the amount that they pay every year. Why did they do this? Because RTD already had a lot of debt it was paying down. They needed to keep costs down back in the 2010s. And it worked, they opened a lot of train lines, but now the bill is coming due. How much train debt does RTD have? So the CFO told me it's about $5 billion in fast tracks debt, and that includes interest. It's going to take 30 more years to pay it off. And it looked like the bus budget was going to help pay some of these train debt costs, violating that bus train budget firewall. Yeah, that sure is what it looked like. And that would be a problem. RTD cut a lot of service during the pandemic and it has not restored most of it. Part of that is a driver shortage, but another big reason is money. It just can't afford to bring all this service back. And the huge debt burden is a big reason why. Well, I understand there is a happy twist in this story, Nate, that the future isn't as dour as you might have thought. Yeah, so I was looking through these financial forecasts and I compared them to last year's version and noticed that for some reason, RTD was projecting a huge increase in its operating expenses on the train side, like labor costs, cumulatively about a billion dollar increase over the previous projection. And so you asked RTD what gives? Yeah, it just didn't make sense to me. And it took them a week to respond. And they finally said that they made a mistake, that they had underestimated the operation costs on the bus side and overestimated costs on the train side. Hmm, put, put that another way. So their error made it look like running the bus system was gonna be really, really cheap and running the train system was gonna be really, really expensive. How did they make this error? So RTD CFO Doug McLeod says they just missed it. We tried to review things as basic policy. Um, we were in a rush to put that together, but it just emphasizes that we need to do a better job. McLeod says the error didn't affect RTD's overall bottom line. So it's not like I found them an extra billion dollars that is now solving all their financial problems. It's just clear now that the trains are not actually a huge drag on the bus system. Well, that seems good. That was the original intent. Yes, Fast Tracks being financially self-sustaining, it's a big deal, it's a good thing. It gives me a little hope that they'll be able to restore more bus service over the next few years if they can hire more drivers. What is the main takeaway for folks? Really, it's that the trains are not going to be a big drag on the rest of the system. That doesn't mean your bus line is going to come back tomorrow, but it's certainly a good sign for the long-term financial health of RTD. Nate, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner, with me at Denver Union Station. When we come back, what's your favorite musical instrument? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Are you planning to take advantage of Colorado's supercharged EV discounts? If you're in the market for a new electric car, consider donating your old one to Colorado Public Radio. You get a new car, we get your old car. And the proceeds from your tax-deductible donation mean we all get great programming. Find the title, fill out a simple online form, and schedule a pickup. It's that easy to donate your car at CPR.org support. How music is created, what makes it special, and how it connects us. Those are all themes of CPR's podcast, Music Blocks, digestible episodes that work as well in cars as they do classrooms. The third season is out now which is music to my ears. The creators are Rebecca Romberg and Luis Antonio Perez from CPR's audio innovations team. And they are here with Carla Aguilar, who's the show's music education consultant. Hi, everybody. Hello. In previous seasons, you've explored music as it relates to emotions, to culture. Uh, Rebecca, what's different this season? So this season, we're getting a little technical. We're still talking about connections and music, uh, but we're talking about the instruments themselves. So we're diving into instrument families. And it's pretty remarkable when you think about there are so many different cultures around the world that create all of these different types of instruments, but they all make sound in really similar ways. Ah. So think about a violin, make sound from the vibration of a string. In Japan, a koto also makes sound from a vibration of a string. In India, a sitar also makes sound from the vibration of a string. I like this idea that instruments are individual expressions of place and culture, but they are also universal expressions of humanity then. Absolutely. Okay. And that's one of the most exciting parts of this season, I think. Now, Carla, people might be familiar with groupings like, you know, woodwinds, brass, percussion, but Music Blocks uses different terms like chordophones. Talk, talk about this terminology. Sure. This comes out of some of the um, ethnomusicology research that we use when we study music. Um, and we think about when we want to study music from other cultures, like woodwinds doesn't always apply to other kinds of cultures. And so ethnomusicologists came up with this system to n- describe these different ways of engaging with the instrument and what the instrument is actually doing, rather than just putting woodwinds, which usually talks about a really specific kind of instrument from Western music culture. Mm. The idea that you can't just apply the terminology of, say, Western orchestras and accurately describe the rest of the world. Right. Yeah. So chordophones are what Rebecca was describing. There are other phones. Yes, there are other phones. So like maybe an idiophone, which is an instrument that makes sound from itself. So we might think about a tambourine, which is when you shake it, is using itself to make the sound. Ah, okay. Uh, Luis, each episode packs a lot into a short amount of time. That's right. And you've done that expressly. That's right. So we make these uh, five-minute musical explorations, and we create it with young people in mind. But really, everyone can really enjoy music blocks, and people tell us so. A lot of adults and parents and teachers also tell us that they listen to it just themselves. And to aid in all of that, we also created these playlists that you can find on different music um, 
subscription platforms related to each episode. And we also have these guiding questions on our website that you can find to start conversations. So it works in the classroom or if you're a parent trying to uh, open up your own mind and your kids' minds to different types of instruments and music. So if I'm hungry for more idiophonic music, I might <laughs> find a playlist that would guide me. Absolutely. Oh, that's very cool. Well, let's listen to the first episode of season three using stringed instruments in different ways to make distinctive sounds. A talented musician can breathe new life into an instrument that's been around for thousands of years. A great example, Michio Yagi and the Kodo. Musicians and composers in Japan have played the Kodo for millennia. But when Michio Yagi wrote this song called Rouge in the early 2000s, she mixed traditional sounds with new ones, which show off the different musical colors of the bass Kodo. Michio Yagi leans over the instrument while she plays. She plucks the strings wildly and rubs a rod across them to create friction. And she brings a traditional instrument into a completely modern place. All around the world, musicians use stringed instruments to make music. And the way musicians play these instruments creates beautiful and distinctive sounds. Today on Music Blocks, say hello to chordophones. Chordophones are instruments that make sound from the vibration of strings. We'll get to know how these instruments can sound when artists and composers use different articulations. That's how a note is played by a musician. And we'll look at the ways chordophone players from all over the world make us sit up and listen. When American film composer Bernard Herrmann set out to score the classic horror film Psycho, he took advantage of the way a group of violinists and other string musicians drag a bow across the strings to produce the bone-chilling texture he was going for. And the chordophone players here made sounds as shrill as a scream. And yet, composers have turned to this same instrument family to create light and joyful melodies for hundreds of years. Austrian composer Johann Strauss II often wrote much lighter music for chordophones. In this piece, he instructs the musicians to play the notes pizzicato. That means musicians pluck the strings instead of using a bow. The result is a kind of dance music. Delicate, joyful, playful. The Luo people of West Kenya have loved the sound of this instrument for thousands of years. It's called a nyatiti. It's got a round body with strings that players pluck. This song by Ayobagata is actually named after the instrument and translates to nyatiti music. (music) 
The instrument is deeply tied to Luo culture. Fishing is a big part of Luo customs, and the strings Nyatiti players pluck are often made from fishing line. Now, pianos also make sound from vibrating strings. Although you don't usually see the strings. They're hidden behind all of that plastic and wood. When a player hits a key on the piano, the key connects to a hammer, which strikes a string. The vibration of that string creates sound. The different ways a pianist strikes that key can create a range of sounds and moods. Take this song by John Legend. It's called Home. There's some things that you should know. At times the world gets The pianist hits the keys lightly, and the chords are legato. They blend together. This technique creates a sense of intimacy. You lean in to hear every delicate chord. But I'll still be there. Then, the player boldly strikes the keys, which accents the chords, as John Legend starts singing louder and with more passion. Before returning to those gentle keystrokes, to emphasize the tenderness of the song's message. Fans of Indian classical music will definitely recognize these sounds. This meditative piece spotlights a stringed instrument called a sitar, which is a major part of India's musical tradition. For this piece, the sitar player, Shamim Ahmed, picks up speed over the course of the 10-minute song. And when he changes between notes, he moves his fingers to create a waver in the sound of the notes. His playing creates a lively and joyful piece of music. No matter where in the world you live, some of your favorite music probably comes from a talented musician who uses different articulations to make strings vibrate beautifully. The start of Music Blocks Season 3. Co-hosts Rebecca Romberg and Luis Antonio Perez are with me now, along with music educator Carla Aguilar. Uh, Carla, what's the value of tying instruments together through shared characteristics across cultures and continents? I think it becomes a way for us to understand that what we might experience, the different ways that we might experience instruments are similar across different cultures. And so when we hear an idiophone or a chordophone or membranophone or different kinds of phones that we are connected across cultures. And I think it also at the same time highlights the differences that we have where there's these really specific kinds of instruments that have evolved out of cultural interest and need. 
um, and ways that the, the people in those places wanted to engage with musical practice. You know, I think the fishing line is a lovely example of something that might not manifest in a landlocked place. And yet, uh, it speaks to me, Rebecca, of how we are so ready to make music that anything around us might become an instrument. Absolutely. It came up all the time in my research for this season. And actually, one of my favorite stories, and Carla pointed me to this, is the steel pan, uh, which is a percussive instrument. It's an idiophone. And its origins are in the Caribbean nation of Trinidad and Tobago. Mm. And it's made from recycled oil pans and car parts and the people of Trinidad and Tobago finding this like industrial waste and saying we're going to turn this into art we're going to make this beautiful Mm -hmm. and now it's something that identifies their culture they take so much pride in it lovely so Rebecca Luis in a season preview you asked each other about your favorite (laughs) instruments why don't we hear what you have to say I'm kind of partial to like instruments that are from Caribbean music, like Latin Caribbean music. And I think my favorite is the timbal, or maybe more appropriately, los timbales, the two that are mastered by the late, great Tito Puente. Adios, Tito Puente Jr. They're just such a staple of Latin music. When I hear that sound, it just brings me home. So much joy in that music. <laughs> Timbales are part of the membranophone instrument family. What about you, Rebecca? Tell me about an instrument that you think is super cool. You know what? I think one of the coolest instruments mm-hmm. is the one that I happen to be using right now. Mm-hmm. It's the human voice. Oh, yeah. There's so much that we can all do with our voices. And, you know, one of my favorite singers, like, do you know the band The Cranberries? Yeah. Their lead singer does some amazing things with her voice. I especially love the end of their song, Dreams. That's amazing. Oh boy, not me crying at the idea of Dolores O'Riordan. <laughs> you know, I was supposed to see her in concert here in Denver mm. with a chamber orchestra, and she died. Oh my gosh. Mm. Thanks for bringing that moment to me. Gosh, what a testament it is to how connected our emotions are mm. to, to these sounds. Absolutely. So, so, Ryan, I'd like to ask you a question. Sure. Uh, what's your favorite instrument? You know, I think this the, the the less an instrument is in my daily life, the more curious I am about mm. it, right? I mean, I could say piano, but I'm fascinated by the alp horn. Are you do you know about the, this? The what? The alp horn is the instrument that is in like the Ricola commercials, Ricola commercials. Uh-huh. They're the long horns, mm. obviously placed in your mouth, but that extend feet and feet, yards beyond the musician. Why don't we listen? I mean, the idea is that sound would carry across perhaps Mm. alpine valleys. Okay, are you ready for this fact? The longest alphorn was made out of a single Douglas fir. What? Yeah. What? It, <laughs> <Wow>. it is 86 <laughs> feet wow. long. Oh 
my Amazing. gosh. 86 feet long. That's amazing. And it's so regal sounding. Yeah. It is regal sounding. Although I don't think it would fit even like in your minivan or the hatchback, <laughs> Carla. <laughs> it would not. Okay. No, I'd have to have two of them. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking, by the way, Louise. I appreciate that. Um, before we go, how about an aha moment from each of the hosts? Mm. Louise, what did you learn this season? Um, well, there's always a lot to learn all the time. And uh, I think maybe the thing, <laughs> the episode where I learned the most uh, is uh, we talked a lot about idiophones today. And that's the episode, I think, where I learned the most. And I was just really amazed at how in that episode, we're exploring so many different types of music from so many different places. I mean, we start talking about rock music and then R&B music. And then we hear instruments from Bali and from the West Indies. And while we're producing that episode, it's just like just kind of hit me in the middle of it how just how important music is to every culture all over the world and remind me idiophones are the things that themselves are making like their bodies are making the music right yeah i think the yeah. example i thought of was like a symbol uh-huh okay uh what's an aha moment from this season also please stop calling me an idiophone honestly <laughs> tired of it we're all idiophones <laughs> no um is the human voice idiophone by the way the human voice is technically an aerophone oh. uh, because it makes sound with air. Well, that's my aha moment. What's yours, Rebecca? Um, gosh, I'm trying to... I've had so many aha moments in this season. This has been one of the most research-heavy seasons so far. Yeah. And I've learned so much about the ways that music is tied to culture viscerally and physically and spiritually and emotionally. It's something that people turn to in nearly every stage of life for many, many, many different occasions. And I don't know, it sounds a little hokey, but Not it's, at all. Um, I'm so glad such you a in- source of good. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm so, uh, such a source of good. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you invoked spiritually as well. I mean, the experience that I had even listening to Dolores Reardon. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how is that not some version of God? Yes. Well, and um, Luis mentioned the Balinese idiophones that we feature in, um, it's a gamelan orchestra. Mm. And in a lot of circumstances, the performers in gamelan orchestras see their performance as a spiritual act. That they are vessels it's in a, a way. It's a prayer. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Congratulations on the new season. Thanks, Ryan. Thank, Thank you. you. Rebecca Romberg and Luis Antonio Perez host CPR's podcast, Music Blocks. The third season just dropped. Carla Aguilar is this season's music education consultant. Find Music Blocks wherever you get podcasts and, as always, at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.